This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. The week began with confusion around the Ontario plan to bring down the case numbers of COVID-19, decrease the people hospitalized with COVID, particularly those in intensive care, and get more people at risk for contracting COVID-19 vaccinated, including those 60 and older who've yet to receive a shot. There has been a call for more clarity, a clear directive in the provincial plan as the third wave becomes harder to manage. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Monday, Bob Kompsik spoke with the Zoomer squad about these issues. Here are Bill Van Gorder, Interim Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and VP here at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. This third wave seems to be a whole new uh, pandemic on its own. We thought we understood that it would it affected older people to a great extent. And so we got all the vaccines into the old age homes and the nursing homes and the retirement homes. And now it seems like it's younger people who are being affected. And it's creating a, a huge conundrum among public health officials of, of how to roll out the vaccine. Do we go by age still or do we start hitting frontline workers what about people who have underlying conditions? There's a lot of people clamoring for this vaccine, a lot of groups clamoring for it. And um, the province certainly has its work cut out for them, figuring out who should get it when. Well, I drew the short straw today, Bob. I'm going to voice the unpopular opinion here that this thing is much more confused and contradictory than it needs to be because they keep changing the criteria. The last time we had a big surge was January. The first 15 days in January, we added 43,000 new cases during that period. I'm talking Ontario-wide. We were seeing daily fatality numbers. There was a 61 and 89 37, 51, 41. During those 15 days, 43,000 new cases, 708 deaths for a 1.6% rate of deaths to cases. First 12 days of April, the Ontario website only goes up to April 12th, 39,000 new cases, roughly the same, a little bit less, but we're a day or two short. So another big peak, but the deaths, the total deaths during that period, 178 deaths, for a death rate of four-tenths of 1% of all new cases. Now, that makes sense at one level if it's younger people, but it all says, what are we trying to do here? All I hear from the public health, one minute they're worrying about deaths, then they're worried about number of beds in ICU, now they're worrying about infections altogether. When would we take these kinds of measures for any disease that had a fatality rate of four-tenths of 1%? But you can't get any consistency out of any of them as to what they're worth. So they wind up worrying about everything and satisfying nothing. And I think that's the conundrum we're in, frankly. 
Bill Van Gorder, if we can kind of springboard off what David is saying there with some of those numbers, do you feel then the focus should be on cutting down on the infections first? Because we can't do everything we'd like to, but we can't do it all at the same time. Uh, No, uh, no, we can't. And, you know, the unfortunate thing and what's really worrying uh, uh, older adults right across the province is uh, we're not getting the vaccines we need. We're less than a third of the percentage of people who have been uh, vaccinated in in the United States. And we always like to think that our health system is uh, better. We're getting mixed uh, information, as David says. It's it's, uh, very... uh, very confusing, and, uh, and 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 seniors are feeling that uh, uh, that they're being forgotten. Uh, that now that the that the the pressure is on to use the vaccines for for other parts of the population, they're not arguing with that. They they understand it, uh, but they're afraid that uh, their needs. Re- remember that almost fifty percent of those over seventy have at least one risk factor in addition to their age. So nothing has changed in the fact that uh, our older uh, residents of Ontario are still more at risk than much of the rest of the population. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Policy Officer at CARP. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and VP here at Zoomer Media. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. The week ended with the premier announcing even more restrictions as the seven-day average of daily COVID cases rose above 4,000. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. On Monday, hospitals in Ontario, except for those in the northern part of the province, began ramping down non-emergency surgeries so resources could be channeled to intensive care units strained by the third wave of the virus. We also learned hundreds of thousands of fewer women were screened for breast cancer in Ontario last year, and some fear this will lead to a crisis of more serious, later-stage breast cancers after the pandemic. Joining Bob Komsik to discuss, Dr. Haim Bell, Physician-in-Chief at Sinai Health, Dr. Jean Seeley, Head of Breast Imaging at the Ottawa Hospital and President of the Canadian Society of Breast Imaging, and NDP health critic France Jelena. The situation we are in right now is is catastrophic. It is really bad. We already have a quarter of a million procedures, surgeries that did not get done because of the first and second lockdown. Um, what will that mean now that we will add to this list? Uh, nothing good. Um, now that we are in it, you have to look at every possible action, every possible sources of help have to be tapped into uh, so that we can stabilize our ICU, our hospital admission, our people on ventilators, and keep people, more people from getting sick, as well as uh, reopen our hospital to uh, non-emergency surgery. Dr. Jean Seeley, President of the Canadian Society of Breast Imaging. How did we get here? You know, we've learned a lot in the last uh, year since COVID hit. And when we first started uh, with the pandemic, we, we didn't 
uh, know all the safe guidelines to use. So we stopped screening uh, in Ontario and across Canada as well as internationally for three months. And that led to marked decrease in uh, the number of women who were coming in for screening. Um, and we started again in June, um, but we've had some uh, difficulties with um, women knowing that it was safe to come in for their screening. Uh, and that has led to hundreds of thousands of women in Ontario. We know that 400,000 fewer women were um, screened in the Ontario Breast Screening Program, but we also know that there's probably another 30% uh, of that number who have not been screened outside of the screening program because they're either in the 40 to 50 age group or they're breast cancer survivors. So there are many, many women who haven't been screened for breast cancer. And on the line now from Sinai Health, Physician-in-Chief, Dr. Chaim Bell, at what point did you say to yourself, maybe one day, oh boy, I can see where this is going? Truthfully, we've seen this coming for a long time. Uh, this was projected some time ago. Um, many times we were able to avert things uh, by our various measures, and, and that's been brought forward, but we saw this uh, some time ago coming. It's a little bit different when it's when it's right near you in, in sense of time, but the projections have really been there for some time. How do we get out of the crisis that, that we're in right now? The, the recognition is it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, the, in a sense, the die has been cast already. So any efforts that we then bring in from the future or if from now or the future, we'll only have it. We'll only see its effect in a few weeks, as you know. Just with everything with time, vaccinations take at least two weeks to reach their maximal um, amount just for that single dose. So we won't really see effects of those of those um, efforts for a while, and and that's part of the sobering aspect is that what we will see, what we see today will be worse tomorrow and worse the next day. Dr. Chaim Bell, Physician-in-Chief at Sinai Health. Dr. Jean Seeley, Head of Breast Imaging at the Ottawa Hospital and President of the Canadian Society of Breast Imaging. And NDP health critic Franz Jelena. They were in conversation with Bob Kopsik on Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, back to school after the spring break goes virtual. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. On Sunday, Education Minister Stephen Lecce insisted schools across Ontario would reopen to in-person learning this coming week after the break. The next day, Monday, Premier Ford announced the province would be going to all virtual learning after the spring break because of new information received on rising cases of the COVID variants. Soon after, there was a call by Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca for the Premier to fire Lecce because Del Duca claims Lecce no longer has the confidence of the people of Ontario. 
Our strategy panelists addressed this issue when they joined me on Tuesday. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. To some degree, uh, it looks really poorly on, on Lecce and the, Prime, and the Premier's office to suggest that, uh, you know, we've made a decision and then immediately following a different decisions made by the Premier uh, puts into question Lecce's, uh, you know, longevity on the job. And I say that only because it's typical of what has happened in the past with Ford and some of his ministers. The Premier will have to, he normally has in the past made decisions to put them aside, protect his interests and saying he's fighting for the people regardless of what his ministers may or may not be doing. Well, that's interesting because there has also been a fairly lengthy call by the Zoomers group CARP uh, for the premier to fire his long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton. He has n- not gone there at all. And and I sort of think about Stephen Lecce along the same lines as a minister Fullerton. It feels like there is a loyalty between the premier and Fullerton and is there, you know, in terms of, of that, Karen, do you think there is a strong connection between the Premier and Stephen Lecce, or had Stephen Lecce been going vogue? A rogue, sorry. <laughs> I, I think it actually reflects poorly, not just on the Premier and the Minister of Education, but on public health, to be candid. Because I watched the Premier, you know, announce with, with conviction that the schools were safe and it was important to keep the kids in school. And Sick Kids has been saying we need to do everything possible to keep the kids in school. And not an hour later, he's overruled by Toronto Public Health. And it seems to me that that didn't need to play out that way. And it's not those, it's, it's one of those instances where the public looks at it and says, I don't know if anybody knows what they're doing. And it's not, um, it's easy to point the finger at the Premier Ford because he's the one who stands at the podium. But the public is left wondering what is, what is really happening? Right. And, and how do we really get control of this virus? And are we actually just responding to knee-jerk reactions as opposed to, again, more strategic approach about vaccinating, rapid testing, isolating? And, and, and you know, you're just it's a bit of a head scratch to be candid. John, as far as Premier Ford and Minister Lecce uh, changing their tune in a matter of hours, is that uh, the Premier just under so much pressure that he realized that the science is showing it doesn't make sense to send the kids back to school next week? You know, this is, and we've talked about this before, where this is a constant evolving issue and issues. And we're seeing that not just in Ontario, but we're seeing that in other provinces where leaders, premiers, are adjusting to the news that they get on a day-by-day basis. And, and I think a lot of them, and I'm, I'm talking about Premier Ford here specifically in our province, you know, is trying to do what he can and has been to try to keep, you know, people, kids at school because parents, by and large, have overwhelmingly wanted their kids to go to school. We saw a number of regions, both Peel and Toronto and others, that decided to, that their health officials decided they were going to close the schools. Well, that's that's a decision that's made that that takes a, a big chunk of the population, the kids in Ontario, out of school. So then it would make sense for for the province to go and shut down schools across the province, especially because the numbers are still going up. There's still that concern. And their concern, of course, was that if kids are going to be at home uh, during spring break, or I should say March break, or extended March break, I guess, then then obviously the, the chances of them contracting COVID and bringing them back to school uh, was increased. So I think it was more of a proactive precautionary thing to be able to do, given the fact that the whole province is shut down for, for, uh, for the next few days. 
John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We Canadians have been told to expect more details in the coming days on Air Canada's plans for ticket refunds. News broke on Monday afternoon that representatives with the pandemic-battered airline had reached a deal with the Trudeau Liberals to access up to $5.9 billion in loans and equity financing from the public purse. Finance Minister Christian Freeland explained that as part of the deal— Passengers who did not travel because of the pandemic will get their money back. She also said Air Canada will repay the loans, which come with strict conditions to protect Canadian travelers, Canadian tax dollars, and Air Canada workers. The package will also see the federal government pay $500 million for a 6% stake in the country's biggest airline. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Tuesday, I was joined by Dr. Carl Moore, airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University, Dr. Gabor Lukacs, president of Air Passenger Rights, and QP president Mark Hancock. This announcement is good news for 2,000 of our members that are still working at Air Canada, and we're hoping that it'll bring some stability and security uh, going forward. We're also happy to see the government take a uh, an equity stake in the company as well. It's something else that we were really pushing uh, from early on, making sure that this wasn't just uh, a handout to the company. And we're also happy to see that it's a loan, not a handout. Right. And that the company will have to pay back what it borrows. So those, those are the positive things. But on the negative side is for you know our 8,000 members at Air Canada and Air Canada Rouge who were laid off last spring with, with no access to the wage subsidy, been waiting 13 months hearing the government say over and over again that help is on the way. And they found out yesterday that that actually isn't the case. Um, we've been fighting for an aid package for this industry focused on people who keep uh, focus on air safety, the workers. And we had a commitment from the government that any aid package would uh, would directly flow to, to workers for the airlines. And that's clearly not uh, contained in this agreement. So there's some good, but there's also some real concerns in this deal. Let's get reaction now from Dr. Gabor Lukic, president of Air Passenger Rights. This is a bittersweet situation for consumers. On the one hand, they may be getting some refunds, although there is no enforcement mechanism in this entire package. And just this morning, we learned that Air Canada put out new terms and conditions which appear to negate in more explicit language, passengers' rights to refund in the situations like the pandemic. So it's far from being clear what Air Canada is going to do with tickets that you purchase starting today or tomorrow. And if those flights are cancelled, Air Canada may well try to pull the same trick all over again and point at its new terms and conditions. Okay, let's go to Dr. Carl Moore and get your overall reaction to the Air Canada deal. I think it's an excellent deal for Air Canada and for the government. Uh, it's something where you have a lot of Canadians who are going to be getting refunds, and so that's great news for them. So it's something where it's going to cost potentially Canadian taxpayers like you and I. But I, I like a couple parts, but one was the, that the, the equity. It's a bit unusual in a sense in a deal like this, so we see a lot of um, governments around the world have equity positions. So I, I think that's going to sell. In, they are hoping in a year or two when the share price of Air Canada goes up, the government be able to to rightly claim that they um, 
got an equity share, which has made money for the taxpayers of Canada. So that was an interesting get involved in the running of the airline. Governments are good at some things, business at others. Governments typically don't run airlines well, is the lesson over the last 30, 40 years. Also, there was an interesting thing about the environment in there, which certainly the airline industry is concerned about. And so they're getting some encouragement for the government. So that was kind of an interesting uh, addition that I was a bit surprised by. So I think overall positive both for Air Canada, for Canadians uh, in terms of having a viable uh, major player, though we need to have WestJet and Transit and so other on, on board as well. Dr. Carl Moore, airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University. Dr. Gabor Lukacs, president of Air Passenger Rights. And CUPE president, Mark Hancock. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Susan in St. Catharines called to say how disappointed she is in Premier Doug Ford's handling of the pandemic. I honestly am not happy with Mr. Ford. I think he's been reactive and not proactive all the way along, and we could have prevented some of this. I know there's a high number of cases, but people have to realize that vaccines are very important to protect you. It does not get rid of the, the virus. It, the virus is still going to be there. So we've got to get the vaccines. And I think it's spreading in workforces where people have to go to work. And so it needs to be opened up province-wide so that anybody 18 and over can get it to help prevent hospitalization. Kathy in Toronto called with her story of trying to get her 80-plus mom a vaccine appointment. My mother, uh, she's, she'll be 86, uh, homebound. Um, she hasn't received her vaccination yet. Um, the Lynn has put her on the homebound uh, list. So she was placed on the list not March 18th. Now, previous to this, she's always gotten the flu shot at home, the same reason for the, being homebound. So I assumed that there was a system in place and that the people, you know, they really had the names. And, and since they were doing the flu shots previously, this should be easy for the COVID vaccination. So she's on there. No one called me. I was told that I would call to, somebody would call me to these in advance. Now, yes. these seniors, they're, they're on the list. When you call EMS and you ask them, when exactly is that happening? Can you give me just a time frame? I get that it could be anywhere from weeks to months. Uh, they tell me that first I get that there's 3,000 on the list, then there was 5,000 on the list, then I call again, well, we do five a day, which didn't make any sense to me. Then again, well, we do 20 a day. Whether they do five a day, that'll take them two years to get to the homebound person. If they do 20 a day, that'll still take them one year. So we are really failing these people. Wayne in Mount Forest phoned with the challenges he faced in trying to get a COVID shot. My wife and I are both in our 70s. She is older. I started the last week in February trying to get into the site. I live in Gray County. 
which only has uh, two vaccination sites, both three-quarters or an hour away. They use the provincial site. I tried six different times. I would get into it okay. But then when it comes time to pick my date, everything quit. I'm not a computer literate person, so again, I didn't know if I was doing something wrong or if it was the system. Finally, I gave up. Frustrated, I went to the Mount Forest area, which is Wellington County. I mean, it's only 50 feet across the highway. But the issue was Wellington County uses their own site, and that was somewhat better to work with. We managed to get through into the system okay. We were able to get through and get things recorded, but then when it comes to time to pick the date, again, I was stymied. Oh, no. So, so do you have your date? Do you, do you have a we date? Are, we are set up for Monday. It's taken six weeks, but we get our needle on Monday. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Don in Toronto, who phoned after listening to so many seniors tell their stories of being unable to book a COVID vaccine appointment. Listening to this is making me sick to my stomach, and I love being Canadian. I love being from Toronto. I just turned 60 last week. Um, I'm computer savvy beyond it was a challenge to finally book my shot. I got it yesterday. Um, but I have to tell you, I have friends older than me in my area code in the city. They can't access. They can't get it. I have a sister in L.A. Uh, sorry, a brother in L.A., 47. He got it, boom, a month ago. I have a sister in New York, 54. Boom, she got it 10 days ago. We have been failed. We have been left down. My heart is breaking for people in remote places. I can't hear anymore that the systems are broken. They're broken. Jane, they're broken beyond. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.